But in fact, the Cold War was another example of a clash between liberal and illiberal systems. And so when I, when I think when we look back on this period 100 years from now, I think we're going to say that the U.S.-China and U.S.-Soviet competitions were just two manifestations of this larger ongoing contest between democracy and authoritarianism that, that really reaches back quite a long way. Hello, and welcome back to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, the entirely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. I'm your host, Julia, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Indy. With the end of the Cold War, a 45-year-long rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, many predicted that long-term peace would ensue, liberal democracy as the final form of government for all nations. Yet, just 30 years after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, American hegemony has been displaced by long-term competitions with China and Russia, authoritarian nations whose ideals and goals threaten the American-led international system. So how can the United States best navigate Russian and Chinese aggressions to gain an advantage without sparking war in the dangerous age of nuclear weapons? And what should be the ultimate goal of the United States' competition with China and Russia? We're joined today by Professor Hal Brands to discuss these questions by applying lessons learned from the Cold War, America's first and only experience in long-term competition as a great power. Hal Brands is the Henry A. Kissinger Distinguished Professor of Global Affairs at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and a senior fellow at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments. He is also a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. He is the author or editor of several books, including his most recent book about around which our discussion is based today, The Twilight Struggle, What the Cold War Teaches Us About Great Power Rivalry. Hal served as Special Assistant to the Secretary of Defense for Strategic Planning from 2015 to 2016, and has been a Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellow. He has also consulted with a range of government offices and agencies in the intelligence and national security communities, and served as lead writer for the Commission on the National Defense Strategy for the United States. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Professor Brands, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here. So to get us started, one of the key premises of your new book um, is the importance of examining the past and applying lessons from the past to provide insights um, into the future. And so in order to frame our conversation today about um, current great power competition, could you provide some historical background for what the geopolitical situation was like during the Cold War. So in some ways, there are some interesting parallels between the geopolitical situation during the Cold War and today. There are lots of differences, of course, the levels of economic interconnection between the U.S. uh, and the Soviet Union during the Cold War dramatically less than those between the United States and China, uh, or even the United States and Russia today. And there are many other differences, which I'm, I'm happy to talk about. But uh, in both cases, the United States uh, essentially faced long-term ongoing competitions for geopolitical and ideological influence with authoritarian rivals. That, that's certainly the case today, if you look at the U.S. relationship with Russia and China. And that was the, that was the nub of the U.S. problem with the Soviet Union uh, after the end of World War II. And so there was a, a lot of instability in the international system back then. And the fear that American policymakers had was that the Soviet Union would sweep to global primacy um, by exerting its influence in a devastated world. And and so the American effort to defend against that really was what led the United States into the Cold War. And so the conceit of the book is that if we look back at how the United States handled 
one instance of long-term great power competition, which is really the only time in its history that it's done this on a sustained basis, we can learn lessons that may be useful today. And applying those lessons to today, can you frame for our listeners a little bit what the current geopolitical situation is? I know this is a big question, but um, what the current geopolitical situation is today between the US, China, and Russia, what we would say are the three great powers of the 21st century, could argue. So the United States basically confronts parallel competitions with Russia and China simultaneously. And so the two countries are, are different. They have different levels of power. The challenge is they pose are different. Uh, so the Chinese challenge uh, is much more comprehensive, right? China is challenging American interests uh, in the economic, technological, diplomatic, ideological, and military realms. The Russian challenge is a bit more narrowly based. And I think China is the greater threat to fundamentally disrupt the international order that the United States and its allies have created. But but nonetheless, both of them are pursuing projects that are deeply challenging to the conception of world order that the United States has tried to uphold. China is looking for a sphere of influence in Asia and trying to spread webs of economic and technological influence uh, around the world. It does seem to envision the emergence of a Sinocentric world order at some point in the next few decades. The Russians probably can't manage that, but they're looking to uh, reestablish a sphere of influence in the former Soviet Union and parts of Eastern Europe. They're projecting power into the Middle East and other regions. Uh, They are destabilizing and meddling in politics in a variety of countries and and generally acting as a spoiler uh, in an already uh, strained international moment. And, And so uh, you know, there's a lot more detail that one could go into about U.S. relations with either of these countries. But uh, when you look at it, there's there are pretty clear challenges in both cases. And so the United States is going to have to take a, a competitive approach to maintaining and protecting its interests. So after the end of the Cold War and the fall of the Soviet Union, you know, a lot of there was a sentiment that it, this was, you know, quote unquote, the end of history, that there was no more conflict to be had. So at what point, if there is a point or moment did we transition from our post-Cold War peace to another great power competition that we're seeing today? Well, in some ways, great power competition never really went away. It was just muted after the end of the Cold War because the United States was so dominant that it was difficult for any rival to openly challenge it. And things just didn't work out that well for countries like Iraq that did challenge uh, the United States. I think a couple of things you know, happened over time. And so one was that it's clear in retrospect that Russia and China were never that comfortable in the international system that the United States led after the end of the Cold War because they saw that system as a check on uh, the influence they believed they deserved. And they worried that a liberal international order might be destabilizing to the illiberal political systems over which their leaders presided uh, at home. At the same time, the balance of power was gradually shifting. And so Russia recovered from its extreme post-Cold War weakness China experienced really breathtaking growth, which it channeled into a pretty breathtaking military buildup. And so over time, these countries have developed uh, the ability to challenge American influence as as well as the motive. And it happened at at different times in different uh, places. And so I think that the uh, challenge that Russia posed really started to become clear in Georgia in 2008, particularly Ukraine in 2014. It perhaps took a little bit longer Uh, with China, although the turn towards a more assertive Chinese foreign policy probably dates back to the global financial crisis of 2008, 2009, 
uh, as well, but it was another few years before I think you got a consensus in the United States that the relationship had moved into a more antagonistic uh, phase. And, and so now we find ourselves in a place where the nature of the U.S. relationship with both countries is fairly clear, but it took a while for us to get to that clarity. So I just want to transition into the um, lessons from the Cold War that you discuss in your book. So Julian, I just want to touch on maybe two of them um, that you talk about. And first of all, the one that I want to discuss first is um, the lesson that you discuss in what you call so this lesson that you call the creation of an enlightened inside game, quote unquote, referring to the U.S.'s careful cultivation of allies and partnerships during the Cold War so that the Cold War was not a purely bilateral conflict. So could you just briefly explain how the U.S. cultivated and utilized allies during the Cold War? So the cultivation of allies, I think, was really the central pillar of American strategy during the Cold War in a couple of respects. You know, first, it uh, helped the United States essentially build barriers to Soviet expansion in regions that we cared about. And so the creation of NATO or the creation of a bunch of security alliances in the Western Pacific uh, essentially threw up walls against Soviet expansion in those regions and helped deter aggression and basically bound the influence that the Soviet Union could exert. But they also helped sort of create and stabilize what we would now think of as the free world. And so this was hardly inevitable. Um, the capitalist world was in really bad shape after World War II. There was no guarantee that it wouldn't fall apart again. And so the most constructive thing that the United States did was try to help the capitalist nations, particularly uh, countries in, in what we consider the West, and so, so Western Europe, East Asia to a certain extent, uh, build a thriving economic, political, ideological, and military community on, on the belief that doing so was necessary to make them strong enough to resist Soviet coercion or subversion, but also that doing so would, would constitute the best counter-argument the United States could make against Soviet communism. And so if you could make the capitalist world just and equitable and, and prosperous uh, and stable, uh, and it could attain a level of well-being that the communist world never could, then that would be a very powerful indictment of the Soviet bloc and of communism itself. And of course, that's what ultimately happened. The communism failed for a variety of reasons, but one of the reasons that it failed was that it simply couldn't keep up with the free world community that the United States had cultivated and led. So in your opinion today, are we doing enough to ally with nations in the Asia Pacific to compete geopolitically against China? And if not, what can we do better to emulate how we handled alliances during the Cold War? I think we have pieces of the strategy. And so if you look at a variety of things that the Trump and Biden administrations have, have done, they start to add up to um, greater allied and partner effort vis-a-vis -vis China. The, the Quad, uh, which is a group that includes the U.S., uh, Japan, Australia, and India, uh, I think is a useful contribution to Indo-Pacific uh, security. There's AUKUS, which brings the United States, the United Kingdom, and Australia together in a defense and technological partnership that's pretty clearly aimed at China. The, the Biden and Trump administrations have done some interesting things in rallying sort of mini tech coalitions to deal with China on issues like semiconductors. The Biden administration has tried to uh, bring groups like the G7 or NATO uh, into the China competition in greater ways. And I think all of these are, are useful endeavors. I think they're all necessary and we should be happy that they are happening. I, I do think there are some um, holes in the American strategy in this regard, and, and trade really is the biggest one. And so the United States 
I think, understands intellectually that if it wants to compete with China for influence in Asia, it has to offer an alternative to economic dependence on China. This, of course, was the rationale for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is the trade deal that the Obama administration mostly negotiated uh, and which was finally signed in, in 2015, but it was never ratified. And the Trump administration withdrew from it uh, when it took office in early 2017. And since then, we really haven't had anything that would help us build an alternative center of economic gravity, one that would make countries like Vietnam, for instance, uh, less dependent on trade with China and less susceptible to Chinese coercion. And so there are a variety of areas where I think we can do more, but, but trade is the one where I think our strategy is most obviously lacking. And just to turn briefly to U.S.-Russia competition and the U.S.'s allies um, that it utilizes against Russia, um, do you think that the U.S. is currently working effectively with NATO to deter Russia during the ongoing Russia-Ukraine crisis? Well, I think it's hard because we're trying to deter Russia, but we've made clear, you know, properly, I think, in my view, that we're not going to deter it through military means. And so nobody in the United States or in NATO is talking about putting U.S. or NATO troops in Ukraine to sort of physically prevent uh, a Russian invasion occupation or even to serve as a, a tripwire. And I, you know, we can argue about whether the Biden administration should have said that publicly or not, but I, I don't think it's the wrong policy. Ukraine is not a military ally of the United States. And while we have a strong interest in deterring a uh, Russian invasion, I'm not sure that we have such an interest that it would be worth uh, waging war to, to do it. And so that has left the uh, administration and the alliance trying to deter this through the threat of imposing costs. So it could be economic costs in the form of sanctions, diplomatic costs in the form of isolation, uh, strategic costs in the form of potentially adding countries like Finland and Sweden uh, to NATO. Uh, you know, these things would, I think, be fairly painful for Russia. But I'm not sure that they will be sufficient to deter Putin from undertaking a major military operation, simply because Putin, Putin may conclude that whatever costs the United States can impose on him uh, do not outweigh the costs he fears incurring if Ukraine continues on its current trajectory, which is one of greater and greater alignment with the West. Uh, and so uh, this may be a case where we can make a variety of deterrent threats, and it simply doesn't make a difference in Putin's calculus. And Professor, I, I want to turn from the lesson of alliances to another lesson that you highlight um, in your book, and that's the importance of finding areas of cooperation and diplomacy, even when competing in other areas. Um, and I think you say to create enough stability to um, allow yourself to pursue an advantage in that competition. Um, I think one question that perhaps listeners might have when they hear that is, how can we compete in some areas, for example, with China, um, but cooperate in others without one undermining the other? Yeah, it isn't easy. Um, and I certainly don't mean to suggest that it that it would be. I think that, you know, when we look at the relationship with China, there are two clashing imperatives. And so one imperative is to shore up American positions militarily, technologically, economically, and otherwise, so that we don't uh, jeopardize uh, fundamental interests in dealing with China. The other is uh, to engage China on issues where we do have common interests. And so one common interest might be 
uh, dealing with the effects of climate change. A second common interest might be um, you know, preventing or responding to future pandemics. I think what makes it difficult, though, is that it, it's not clear you know, how much cooperation we will get from China on some of these things in, in any event. And so I, I think China is just kind of fundamentally uninterested in really intrusive cooperation on pandemic surveillance and response because, you know, China, frankly, hasn't done that much to help the world deal with this pandemic, uh, in large part because it, it emerged due most likely, at least in part, to Chinese negligence and Chinese obstruction in the early phases of the pandemic. And so that may be an area where we want cooperation, but we can't get it. I think the, the other challenge is that um, there is a temptation to think that we should you know, go easy on China in certain phases of the competition to win their cooperation on issues like climate. I, I think this would be a mistake, though. I think that China is either going to cooperate with the United States on climate issues because the CCP believes it is in China's interest to do so, or it won't because the CCP believes it is not in China's interest to do so. I don't think it's ultimately going to have much to do with American policy toward the South China Sea or any other uh, issue. And so I worry we would just be trading away leverage unnecessarily uh, if we were to take uh, the sort of the quid pro quo uh, approach. I, I think the best thing that we can do is try to compartmentalize cooperation and say that we're going to compete you know, vigorously where we need to, but we're willing to carve out space in the relationship for cooperation on climate. Now, I don't know if that's going to work or not. The Chinese have said that they reject that kind of approach. They want a linkage approach. And the Chinese may take, frankly, a more competitive approach to climate than we do by focusing on you know, dominating certain green technologies and things of, of that nature. But, but I think that's really the only possibility we have for at least exploring cooperation on areas of common interest without sacrificing our interests in other areas. And I think climate change, like you said, is an excellent example. And as you say, also, um, we shouldn't make key geopolitical concessions to convince China to cooperate on the issue. So I guess I'm having a little bit of trouble wrapping my head around um, how do we approach China then about cooperation on climate change? Do we just uh, and, and if they say that, like their current position is that they don't want to do this. Do we keep pushing? And if so, what is the next step? Well, so it, it's a little bit hard to say at this point, but I think that right now we're in a little bit of a stalemate. And so the, the Chinese are hoping that they can move us off of our position, that we won't make concessions in other areas to basically buy their cooperation uh, in the area of climate change. And so it may take a little while of us essentially sticking to our guns on this position before they realize that they're not going to be successful in extorting other concessions out of us. Now, if if this persists over time and the Chinese indicate that they're simply not going to cooperate on, on climate change, uh, you know, even after we've made our position clear here, then you might have to move towards a more coercive approach. And so one of the ideas that has been floated is that you know, major economies that are committed to action on climate change would impose some sort of trade sanction on, on those that are not, or those that are obstructing progress. Now, now that may be a fair ways off, I think in part because um, America's own long-term commitment to uh, you know, significant action on climate change is a bit uncertain due to political uncertainty in, in the United States. But if we were to get a few years down the road and, and still be having 
this difficulty, then it might be something we'd have to look at. The, the other point I'd, I would make is that it's not unprecedented for countries to compete in one area while cooperating in others. The United States and Soviet Union were adversaries throughout the Cold War, but that didn't prevent them from cutting arms control deals, from working together to eradicate smallpox or cooperating in, in other areas. And so common interests can still bring countries together, even when um, you know opposing positions geopolitically uh, push them to compete. So having heard some of the lessons that you've you've pointed out in your book that the U.S. should apply to current great power competition, um, I can't help but think about the differences that exist between the Cold War and the like current great power competition between the U.S., China, and Russia. So, for example, just to name a few, um, today's competition is not typically framed in ideological terms, um, as was the case between the U.S. and Russia during the Cold War. And... U.S.-China economies are also much more intertwined than the U.S. and the Soviet unions were um, back during the Cold War. So how how do we and how did you, when you were writing your book, determine when lessons from the Cold War apply to today, um, when there are lessons that don't necessarily apply in the same way, um, and when that divergence happens, how to take a different approach? Well, so you have to be sensitive to context. And so what I, what I try to do in the book is not offer a specific playbook for, um, you know, success in the new U.S.-Russia and U.S.-China competitions. I mean, learning from history doesn't really work like that. It rarely yields, like, do this, do that type of lessons. I, I think what it can reveal are sort of broader insights about the general requirements of being effective in long-term competitions such as these. And so I, I try to frame the lessons more at that level of analysis than at the, okay, on Thursday, do X uh, type of analysis. The, the other point I make, though, is that I think sometimes the differences between the Cold War and today are overplayed. Uh, you know, the ideological context today isn't the same as it was during the Cold War, but make no mistake, I mean, this is a deeply ideological contest between the United States and, and China. It's about whether uh, liberal or illiberal forms of government are going to be the dominant model in this century. The Chinese are making the argument that a strong central government with authoritarian control over the population, fortified by powerful digital tools of surveillance, can deliver greater performance and, and greater stability and greater good than a messy, rambunctious democratic system. The United States is obviously making uh, a different argument. I mean, that, that, is a, that is a powerful ideological dimension of competition. It's, it's a different form of ideological competition than we had during the Cold War. But in fact, the Cold War was another example of a clash between liberal and illiberal systems. And so when, when I think when we look back on this period 100 years from now, I think we're going to say that the U.S.-China and U.S.-Soviet competitions were just two manifestations of this larger ongoing contest between democracy and authoritarianism that, that really reaches back quite a long way. And one of the other lessons that you end your book with is um, you say that ending an entrenched competition peacefully requires blocking an opponent's way forward, but not its way out. And when I read that, I couldn't help but think, what, what is our end game? in our competition with China? In, or in other words, what is China's way out of competition? Yeah, that's the $64,000 question today. And the US government, frankly, hasn't given a particularly good answer to that 
question. I think there are kind of two different hypotheses, uh, and one is that uh, we'll eventually get to a place of managed or managed competition or competitive coexistence. And so, if we show China that we're serious about competing with them, a decade from now we get to some sort of detente where we still compete in certain areas, but we respect each other's vital interests. There's not much danger of war, and we can all kind of um, you know, live happily, uh, even if we're not, uh, you know, all in perfect harmony. I think, you know, the challenge with that is that it, it simply may not be possible. And so when I look at, you know, China's objectives today, when I look at the nature of the Chinese regime, I, I think that the dispute between the U.S. and China is a bit more fundamental. And so the second hypothesis is that the United States is essentially going to have to sustain this competition until either Chinese power fades in a significant way or the nature of the current regime evolves. That's not to say that we should presume regime change or try to overthrow Xi Jinping or anything crazy like that. It's, it's simply to recognize that um, you know, part of China's uh, discomfort with the existing international system is, is wrapped up in the fact that it is a deeply authoritarian regime in a world led by a democratic superpower. And so if that's the case, then it indicates that we have sort of a longer, harder slog ahead of us. That's a less attractive hypothesis, but I think it may actually be a more realistic one. But I think the general point is that we do need to get greater clarity on this question of what is the end game or, or how do we think that competition leads to a better status quo over time, because if we don't, then we're essentially practicing tactics without strategy. And with both of these theories, how does, and I don't know if this is um, too broad of a question, but how does this play out realistically? Is this something where we can expect um, peripheral conflicts between uh, American and Chinese allies, or will this play out slowly? And if, if slowly, how do we know at what point we've reached this way out or we've reached this end game already? Well, I think it's potentially a mistake to assume that this is going to be like the Cold War in the sense that there will you know, never be a hot war between the United States and China. I certainly hope there won't be a hot war between the United States and China. I mean, that would be sort of awful beyond imagination. But, you know, th there is a chance of that. So if you look at China's goals vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and American concerns vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, there's a non-trivial uh, possibility of conflict there in the next few years. You can imagine other scenarios in which the United States and, and China might find themselves in, in conflict. And so uh, we would like it to be a competition that is sort of uh, slow and predictable and that is ultimately resolved without war. And that's, that's kind of how we remember the Cold War, even though that's not really how it was in real time. But, but the price of getting that sort of competition will be deterring a hot war. And I think that's actually the area where the United States needs to be moving with a lot greater urgency than it is today. Professor Brands, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.